Hello and welcome to Hindsight on RN. I'm Lorena Allam. Port Arthur in southern Tasmania is one of Australia's largest historic sites. And it's a place that holds several tragic histories. The dispossession and death of the First Peoples, the brutal convict history, and the shooting massacre in 1996, where 35 people were killed by a man who locals prefer not to name or to mention. To mark that most recent tragedy, a reflecting pool was created on the site. But there's much to be seen of the convict heritage, and for keepers of heritage sites, there's always a question. How best to convey a sense of the people, of the lives lived and lost there? Gretchen Miller went to Port Arthur to take a look at a very modern approach to one of Australia's oldest post-settlement stories. The sprawling grounds of the historic site of Port Arthur on the southern tip of Tasmania are peaceful and park-like. Great greens stretch around. The ruins are intriguingly glimpsed through the trees or at a distance, down the hill and towards the water. Watching over it all is the roofless church built by young convict boys who were brought over daily from Point Poor to work on it. It's a fascinating site for its size, but also its sense of peace and tranquility. But the charismatic and well-recognised old penitentiary building at its heart is currently at risk of collapse and so is smothered in scaffolding. A major revamp like this offers a chance to think afresh about how much to preserve a building and also how to represent the place to the public to better invoke the sense of the dynamic human history in the serenity of the grounds. You start at the top in the visitor's centre with an invitation to get to know your own convict. Prisoner in the dock. You are a servant assigned to Richard Willis of Wanstead Park. You have been found guilty of being drunk in charge of a bullock team and having in your possession property belonging to your master. You will serve 12 months' hard labour at Port Arthur. My name is John Neldrit. I was under sentence from this office on the 12th of August, 1833, and three or four days after receiving the punishment, I was dismissed from the jail to return to the service of my master, Mr Willis. I had a pass to go to Mr Willis, and on the same night I absconded. I went down to Hobart Town. I was never stopped on suspicion of being a runaway. I'm Jodie Steele, I'm the Heritage Programs Manager. So I manage the interpretation, the education program and the collections and house museums on site. My name's Marita Perry, I'm the Acting Conservation Manager at Port Arthur Historic Site. The Visitor Centre was established in the late 90s to create a really strong interpretive experience before people came out into the site. Because as you step further out into the historic site, you realise how vast and how huge the place is. And you disconnect from the people a little bit when you're out there. There's so many beautiful gardens, buildings, things like that. The people get a little bit lost. So it was designed so that you can engage with the people before you stepped out into the lovely surrounds that are out here. Mm. Mm. Which may not have been so lovely at the time. Correct. <laughs> less, a lot less lovely than what they are today. When you've got in excess of a thousand men working in an industrial complex, you can imagine the noise, not to mention the smells of something like a bone crushing mill, a tannery, you know, blacksmithing, the heat, the smells, the sounds, it would have been so noisy. And that's one of the difficulties that Jody has with interpretation, is 
trying to get that message across to people that it wasn't a lovely, serene parkland and how do you do that without rebuilding and we've got to look at all those issues. So it's a, it's a massive challenge. But in order to make people connect with what actually happened here, how do you do that? You have to bring it back to the people that lived and worked here, undeniably. The buildings are beautiful and the grounds and gardens are sensational, but without the people who built the place and who worked in here, you lose a lot of the story. So our best way to do that is to make people connect with those characters, creating storylines, the journey of individuals, whether they be convicts or officials or their wives or children. Prisoner in the dock. You have been found guilty of making use of threatening language, of disorderly conduct and refusing to work. So as people were purchasing their tickets and entering, everyone was assigned a character through a playing card, which enabled them to follow them through their sentence, through being put on the ship, being transported to Van Diemen's Land, and initially how they ended up connecting with or playing a role in the Port Arthur site. So it tells you, once they got off the ship, what their journey was to end up in a place like Port Arthur. It was installed in the late 90s, but with anything that is that old, you have to revisit it and you have to put it in your planning schedules to see whether people still like it and enjoy it. Our visitor comments say that they 100% enjoy it still, so why would you change it? And where are we now? We're standing just outside the hoarding for the penitentiary project and we're about to go into the, into the project site and have a look at the works. This building is so iconic. It was the largest building in Australia of its time and there aren't many ruins this large in Australia. It was a bakery and a flour mill before it was a penitentiary. Also, it was built on reclaimed land. If we were here 200 years ago, we would be standing in water. Why the need to reclaim the land? They ran out of flat space, essentially. When you look at the topography of Port Arthur, it's a big bowl. And the way it was designed was that all of the officials and everyone who had standing in the site was plonked high up on the hillside. All of the convict industry and everything relating to the convicts was down on the low section of ground. As the settlement grew and you ended up with hundreds upon hundreds of convicts being shipped in from all over Australia, Norfolk Island closing down, they needed space where they could put the convicts. So the best thing to do was instead of trying to find space out in the hills where it wasn't safe and you couldn't watch them, they built the land and you've got convict labour to do so. So you can create a lovely flat working space with convict labour. Is there also like an issue with tidal floods here? Yep, so what you're looking at, you're standing on a flat bit of land that's been constructed using large timbers fallen from the bush around. They lay them down in the water, pack in between them with rocks and clay and literally create a flat bed of land. Now, of course, as the water over the last several hundred years comes in and out tidally into those logs, they start to rot and decay. So that's part of the problem as to why the building is also not particularly stable because all of the supports that were under the ground, if they happen to be facing the wrong way and accepting the tide flow over the last hundred years, they've started to degrade. The ones that have been turned around the opposite way are still in perfect condition and the timber's as good as what it was when it went in the ground. So, yeah, very changing environment underneath the ground and that's part of the reason why we've had to do a lot of archaeological investigation to figure out what's going on under there. That's probably a project for the future after this building's been stabilised is to consider how we deal with the waterfront precinct because a lot of the early wharf infrastructure has vanished over time and that would have stopped tide surge and water impacts coming in. That having all been gone and a massive storm that we had in July 2011 where we had six foot waves crashing over the seawall which wasn't so bad in itself but when the water starts to fill up in here and starts to swirl around and scour things that's when it starts to do damage. It's hard to see as you drive towards Port Arthur through Eaglehawk Neck, hugging the western side. 
that you're on a dramatic narrowing which cuts the peninsula off from the rest of Tasmania. As Jody tells me, there were no free settlers living on the Tasman Peninsula. Rather, probation stations were set up all around, growing food, rearing animals, mining for coal and taking timber for the new settlements. Convicts were working everywhere, and in the 1840s, Port Arthur was the administration centre. But it was first a timber camp, perched on a deep-water harbour, with tall stands of forest all around. That's why Port Arthur's here, is because of that cove. It's a harbour that's deep enough to bring in really large vessels. So that, combined with all of the natural resources that were around here and the fact that you're on a peninsula, which is a natural prison, makes it the perfect location for a punishment station. So people were brought here, were they the worst of the worst? Yeah, it was secondary punishment. So the the story about somebody stealing a loaf of bread and ending up at Port Arthur is a very, very, very rare occasion. In fact, I think in going through the records, our guys have been lucky to find one example of a guy who was actually transported for doing that. They were serial offenders. They had to offend in Britain and then be transported to the Australian colony and then re-offend anywhere in Australia before they were sent down here again. So they usually committed at least, you know, two or three crimes to be here and they weren't nice crimes. It's a really beautiful, completely still, warm winter's day. But I understand that's not the typical environment that this building has to stand up to. We quite often have winds over 80 kilometres an hour here. A few times a year we've had to shut down the building since we've known that there has been a structural weakness in it. We've shut down the site The walls look really thick, though. I mean, they've got great sandstone blocks and bricks. Yes, they are thick, but there's a lot of hollow areas we've been finding inside. (laughs) You've got to keep in mind, too, that the guys who built this weren't professional builders. Yes, they were working off professional design drawings from an engineer, usually in London, but it was all convict labour. They were making everything using local materials, so a lot of the stone that Marita and the team have to deal with now is... You touch it and it just, you know, poof, it goes up into a ball of sand. Until recently, a walkway built in the 70s, placed high above ground level, acted as a kind of structural device which pretty much held the building together. But recent tests found the penitentiary was not even 30% compliant with contemporary building safety standards, so the walkway had to come down and the structure was again vulnerable. Want to go in? Yeah, let's Finding the balance between what the engineers want to do, their solutions, and it's it's our responsibility to work within the guidelines of the Borough Charter, which tell us to do as much as necessary, but as little as possible. And engineers tend to do as much as they need to, and <laughs> you know that's plus and plus a bit more just for assurances. But a lot of compromise between the engineers and us. The final result will be a really minimalist view of the building. We'll only see one element of the engineering works, and there's a package of about five elements of engineering works that are being done to this building. So, what will you see? You will see the internal structural beams along the walls of the building. There will be 12 of them. And what won't you see? You won't see the five and a half kilometres of helibar that are being inserted into the joints between the bricks. You won't see the grouted structural anchors, which will be drilled into the top of the walls and inserted the length of the walls. And you won't see the stainless steel top plate, which will hold all of that together. So it's a very clever solution. 
judging from the way you're talking about reconstruction, there's obviously some debate about how much to do. We're pretty clearly guided by the principles of the borough charter that Marita mentioned before, as much as necessary, as little as possible. I guess the loophole in that is when you're trying to interpret the building for people to understand and make it significant to them, which is the difference. We get a lot of people who want us to put roofs back on things. Um, simple answer is they don't need their roofs to survive as a ruin. We can protect them in other ways. They don't need their roofs to be identified as a penitentiary or a church. You can tell that from, you know, standing back and looking at them. So reconstruction is usually a last resort and only usually if it has some sort of interpretive value or it enhances the significance of the place. Interestingly, the way Tasmanians have sort of always viewed their convict past in the early days, the convict stain really hit this place hard and essentially you were invited in to collect building materials for your own home. So people came in, they collected bricks from the penitentiary, they took them home, they built their foundations and barbecues and um, what's left we're lucky to have. And so pretty much from the day that it was reserved in the early 1920s, the Port Arthur site, parts of it, they started to realise that they wanted to look after it and work began in conserving it. But with conservation techniques having come through leaps and bounds, um, it just gives us the opportunity to do a really big major job and hopefully keep it standing for another 150 years. One of the things I'm really interested in is how Port Arthur was designed to create maximum isolation and distress, I suppose, really, in its occupants. It was the perfect location for a prison, so the topography enabled them to establish observation over their convicts, which is what you want, ideally, in a prison. Um, they didn't need to build walls around their prison because they had the Australian natural bush, and to people being shipped out from England, the bush was almost impenetrable to them. You know, it was a foreign thing, full of creatures, sounds, noises, trees that they'd never seen or heard before. So you had to be pretty brave, first and foremost, to want to escape into that. You were so far away and isolated from Hobart Town and everywhere else, and you knew that because you'd come in here on a boat and you knew how long it took and how rough those seas were. And then to arrive here into a place like this, you were put into a cell if you were at the bottom rung or you were sent out into the, you know, those trees and the bush to gather timbers and things like that. So punishment was the way of reform, but it wasn't through your traditional prison style, I guess. It wasn't through walls and keeping you confined in the early years. It was much more through labour. A short walk away and up a grassy hill is the separate prison... While the penitentiary was laid out traditionally, the separate prison had a very deliberate design to create a sense of maximum isolation. And because it's in three wings, it allowed the heritage planners to use three very different approaches to the way it's presented to the public. This whole experience is designed, once you walk through these doors, to give the visitor the sense of what it would have been like as a prisoner to be entering into the separate prison. So we use soundscapes, um, and the way the whole flow of traffic is designed is the approach that would have been used during the convict era. It's a very different experience to the penitentiary because we've had to reconstruct the environment. So what you're looking at is the original stone, but all of the finishing surfaces and everything have been reproduced to create the experience as it would have been in the 1850s, right down to the fact that we light the fire at the end of the hall every day. It's all painted white and you've got this beautiful flagstone floor as well that's not dismal. No, it is. It's very light and airy. It would have been incredibly clean. I guess that's one of the things it's really hard to get across to our visitors in a lot of our ruins is how clean and tidy and neat this place would have been. They really wanted to instil cleanliness into the convicts and they spent a lot of their time keeping this place immaculate. Um, so for us to be able to use the traditional paint techniques that Marita was talking about in lime wash, we can do that to our walls to present the building as it would have been but also keep it clean and tidy. 
So it's built in kind of that cruciform shape. Where you walk in, the entrance hall takes you directly into what is a central hub. And off that, there's, there shoots off four different wings. Three of them house cells and one of them houses a chapel. And it's designed so that the officer sitting in the centre of that central hub has surveillance or observation of all of those wings around him. So A-Wing is completely reconstructed in the same way, shape, form as it would have been in the 1850s, which means those people who need to visualise and see how things work can actually do that in that space. They can see how it operated as a prison in that time. Uh, C-Wing is a bit more of your traditional museum-style interpretation. There's a lot of imagery, there's a lot of words, moving pictures. It means that those people who like to read more and get more in-depth interpretation can do that. We've got touch screens and things that are interactive. And B-Wing is your traditional romantic ruin that people who have been coming here for generations remember the separate prison as. So it shows the whole evolution of the building through its use as a prison to its demise, I guess, through all the different phases of township to the conservation period, which has brought it back to what it is today. It was designed so that everyone was completely separated from each other. You entered in here, you were washed, clothed in the prison garb, and at that point you were given a number which assigned you to a cell within the building. That was the number from that point on that you were referred to. You essentially lost your identity. They didn't refer to you by your name after that point. Once you came in here, you were locked in your cell for 23 hours a day by yourself. In that cell, you ate, you slept and you worked. You were allowed out for one hour a day to exercise, at which point you were observed the whole time you were doing that. Any time you were out in a public space, you wore a cloth mask over your face so that the other prisoners weren't able to identify you and you couldn't communicate with them. So it was a very strict set of rules that kept everybody separate from each other, designed so that you would reflect on what you'd done, think about it yourself and then hopefully reform. So the separate prison was for those who were at Port Arthur already, but who had again offended? Yeah. It served two purposes. Yes, it was for the worst of the worst, but in the later years during the probation period, it was where all of the initial intake prisoners came. So they would come and serve a sentence here, they would do a few months, and then they would be let out into what I guess is more a general population. And this wing directly in front of us where we're standing, those stairs lead up to the chapel. So when you were in the chapel, you were also separated. So we can have a look at that in a little while as well. There were two punishment cells in here. So even if you thought this was pretty bad, if you actually did something wrong in here that deserved further punishment, there were two solitary cells on either side of this wing, which were over a metre thick walls and complete sensory deprivation. So no light, no sound in there. Interestingly designed so that because the place was kept in complete silence, the acoustics in here are designed that if anyone did make a sound, you would hear it. So these days when you've got several, you know, dozen visitors wandering through the place, it is a little bit difficult to get the idea of how quiet this place would have been. Even the chapel here is designed to stop the prisoners laying eyes on one another. It's very moving to see the tiny individual wooden booths which prevented prisoners from seeing anyone other than the priest in front of them. But this was actually seen as an improvement on previous reform techniques. They'd shifted away much sooner than a lot of the other prisons away from physical punishment because they saw that as, you know, not achieving anything. It, it wasn't helping the prisoners reform by constantly flogging them as a punishment. So in their eyes, to be able to separate them all, give them time to reflect, have an opportunity to learn to read and write, and then obviously to have access to both God and medical help and all those sorts of things, they thought they were doing a much better job than what they were when they were flogging the prisoners. 
But this was based on a UK and American model and the Americans and the British soon came to feel that this was inhumane and cruel. But we didn't, we kept on with it. I guess to a degree, but there are still some prisons in existence today that have high security wings where people do spend 23 hours a day in their cells. So it, it does kind of make you wonder how much has actually changed. Gretchen Miller at Port Arthur in Tasmania. The sound engineering was by Stephen Tilley. And you also heard excerpts from Rewards of Silence, a soundscape by artists Sonia Lieber and David Chesworth.